Hi, everyone. Welcome to Key Change, a COC podcast, where we explore everything about opera from a fresh perspective. We're your hosts, Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. So, Julie... In this episode, we get to do something pretty special. We certainly do. It's not often we get to connect with the actual composer and librettist of an opera that we're talking about. Yeah, I've been trying to slide into Puccini's DMs for some time now, and he's just not getting back. (laughs) The creators joining us today are Kai Marshall and Amanda Hale, who are the composer and librettist, respectively, of a new Canadian opera, Pomegranate. Pomegranate is based on a book of poems by Amanda Hale and is a queer love story that follows its main characters between modern-day Toronto and ancient Pompeii, encountering homophobia, impossible choices, and a 1980s lesbian bar along the way. As you mentioned, Amanda is a Canadian writer whose work spans poetry, novels, theatre, and journalism, and now opera. She's the librettist for this piece, creating the text of the story, while the music is the work of Kai Marshall. Kai is a musician, composer, and fellow Canadian whose work is equally prolific. She's an improvisational jazz cellist, and her compositions include film scores, jazz work, and even a concerto for bass trombone, among many other things. They both have such interesting careers, and I'm so excited to learn more about how this opera came to be. As am I. Let's get to it and hear what it was that first sparked Amanda's imagination. In 2001, I visited Pompeii, and I was inspired by the murals in the Villa of Mystery, uh, which um, seemed to be uh, depicting the stations that the young women in the Villa of Mysteries went through during their initiation into the Dionysian Mysteries. After visiting Pompeii, I was thinking about that for a long time. And sometime later in 2007, I published a a book of poems um, called Pomegranate, A Tale of Remembering. And uh, Kai and I had known each other since the 1980s in Toronto. I lived there during that time. And um, that was, you know, an era of um, great feminist creativity and lots of political work going on. Uh, We didn't work together, but we knew each other within the community. And Kai uh, read these pomegranate poems, and she really enjoyed them. And she came to me and asked me if she could set some of them to music. So um, pomegranate, is uh, the opera is interesting in how the development of it has been so organic. Um, And so she set three of the poems to music. And we're both members of the Heliconian Club, which is a a women's um, arts club in Yorkville. And um, in 2014, sometime later, uh, the Heliconian was doing um, an an International Women's Day evening for new music by women composers. We worked with a couple of young student singers and a harpist, and uh, we presented these three songs. Mm-hmm. 
And the response was enormous. People absolutely loved it. They were charmed by it. And I think that's, as far as I remember, that's when we first had the suggestion that we should work on this and develop it into an opera, you know, which we did. And that was the first act set in ancient Pompeii um, with this love story between um, teenage girls. And um, then uh, later on, you know, it, it started evolving into a full opera and we um, we added Act Two, which of course is quite different because it's in downtown Toronto lesbian bar in 1981. Um, so there's two very distinct parts to the opera. But um, anyway, that's how it evolved. And um, so maybe Kai would like to take over from here and talk about how she how she composed music for these two very different scenarios. My own musical journey started as a classical cellist and then the composer. And then I got quite bored playing with orchestra, so I decided to become a jazz cellist. And then I also started becoming a composer, but I also do really avant-garde music. So I, which is when I improvise with people, sometimes people I don't even know, and we make this kind of wild music. And I also have, um, I amplify my cello and I have a bunch of boxes that I use to, you know, change the sound of the cello and do repeats and reverbs and all this kind of thing. So, so this was great because pomegranate is set in, in of course, two time periods. And um, the first act is more specific in the sense of, that it's ancient music. So I've focused more on the harp and the flute, um, of course, strings, uh, oboe. Um, but the second act really opens up to uh, much more varied music. So, you know, different genres in the, in the second act. So, so it's kind of fun that way. How did it take the shape of an opera specifically rather than a cycle of art songs? Because of the story. You know, we wanted to tell the story. And um, I didn't think that art songs would do, could do that. And also when we got, like when we had, we actually did have act one and we did do um, a workshop with act one. And that was when people said, well, why don't you make it longer? And then I thought, well, why not jump to the 1980s in a lesbian bar? <laughs> and, and sort of the implication is, well, it's up to the audience to decide whether it's um, a dream or whether it's, you know, a future life or whatever. Um, but the, there's the two same characters who are in both, both acts. And Kai, do you recall when you had that initial workshop and initial sharing of the first half of the story, do you recall what it was that was resonating with people or that was compelling them to then come to you and say, this needs to be an opera? Do you have a sense of what it was that was calling out to them? I don't know. I think people like the story and they just really, you know, people really love the music and they just really liked it. They wanted more. They wanted more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was too short, you know, it was too short to just be like an opera. And it, it and it was, you know, um, you know, in some ways I feel limited in the first act around the kind of music that I can write. Whereas the second act really opens me up to all kinds of, you know, kind of genres and, more instrument, you know, wider instrumentation, that sort of thing. Amanda, we'd love to hear a little bit about how you approached um, adapting or creating the text for the opera. 
I, I write in many genres. I'm mainly a novelist now, and I've written for theater and, of course, poetry and journalism and screenplays and so on. But I never, I never thought of being involved with opera. Um, it, you know, it really happened in a in a very um, natural way, the way that it developed. I don't think Kai um, thought of being involved with opera either. So for me, um, learning uh, how to uh, write a libretto was quite a learning curve. Um, I went. To, I was talking to Michael Morey at Tapestry because, of course, Tapestry was a place to go to. You know, for someone trying to get a foot into the opera world. And Michael pointed me in the direction of Marjorie Chan, who, as you know, is an award-winning librettist and a, a wonderful artist in many genres. And Marjorie agreed to work with me as, um, you know, as a dramaturg and to, uh, to train me in, uh, in how to write a libretto. Uh, so we we spent a, a long time, many months working together, and in fact, she directed our first uh, developmental workshop. Um, and uh, so it was interesting for me. I had to learn to um, to use less words because uh, you know I was used to having the freedom to uh, to expand on things. But in opera, I came to realize that the words are there only really to hang the music on because the whole thing about opera is the music and the power, the emotional power of the music, um, which has been a wonderful discovery for me. So um, uh, Marjorie coached me in, um, you know, how to prioritize conflict and uh, also to, to work in broad strokes and to be as brief as possible. For instance, you know, transitions are made by the music, so I didn't have to do those transitions. So uh, I was very grateful to Marjorie for uh, everything that I learned from her, but it really was a lot of work, you know, and trying to um, shape my writing skills in a different direction altogether. But I'm very happy now because I've learned so much about, you know, why opera, why certain topics are told in opera, because it's just the perfect genre for them. So um, it's expanded my writing skills. And Kai, having heard a bit from Amanda, the process of creating that text and particularly what opera asks of text, what did that collaboration then look like in terms of you receiving that text or engaging with it and then creating the music? Well, um, Amanda, um, you know, more or less presented me with the text. However, um, we did have a lot of collaboration along the way because I would come to places where it just didn't work for me musically. And so I'd go back to her and say, you know, we could, can we change this sentence or it's too long or, you know, different stuff like that. So, so it's worked very well. Kai is a Libra, so she loves harmony and beauty. So uh, she's very easy to work with because she's not an argumentative person. Uh, she's very patient and um, is so entrenched in the, in the world of music. So it's been wonderful to work with her and we've had a very harmonious easy flow for the most part there's been some bumps along the way of course as there always are um, which only adds to the creativity but um, typically you know we've we've talked on the phone because I'm here in British Columbia and Kai's in Toronto um, and um, we just talk on the phone like I you know when I wrote the libretto you know, there it is, and it's open to changes at any point because it's the music that is the prime part for opera, and I'm well aware of that, that the, the, the words are 
are, um, you know, they're just there for the music to, to hang on. Um, so Kai would call me, you know, and say, you know, could we cut this line out or change this? And, you know, it's been a very easy flow. What is it about the 1980s lesbian bar setting that makes this a fitting counterpoint or complement to ancient Pompeii? So the interesting thing about the um, the first act set in Pompeii, um, it was a temple um, for women. Um, there's a there was a priestess, and it was a place for um, for slaves and women as a sort of refuge. And they had sort of, they had you know vineyards and honey and that sort of thing. And um, it was possibly one of the last refuges of the matriarchy. And part of what happens in the act is that the you know it's penetrated by the by the soldiers by the Roman soldiers. And the the parallel to the second act is that uh, the lesbian bar. There was a lesbian bar in Toronto that was. Um, it was a very safe, felt like a very safe place uh, for lesbians. It wasn't in a very nice part of town, but um, it was a feminist lesbian bar. And again, the bartender was kind of like, in a way, like the priestess, you know, mm-hmm. and she she paid off the police and she tried to protect us. Um, and I guess another parallel is that in the end, neither space was safe. Both time, both spaces were um, invaded by, uh, you know, by men, and you know, you could say in general the patriarchy, um, and they were not safe. Even though there was an illusion of safety. I sense danger here. strikes me as a really powerful juxtaposition, Kai, in the Mm -hmm. sense that sometimes we look at these stories from history, from antiquity, and we think, oh, phew, we're so glad we're not back there. We're so glad things have improved and that things are more inclusive and equal and and safe for for all persons. And then you juxtapose them with a contemporary setting and you go, oh, there's risk here too. There's danger here too. There's a lack of safety here too. But there's people within that trying to create communities of safety. Of course, the other parallel is that um lesbian love is precarious you know it it was then i mean according to the fiction of the opera but it certainly is uh nowadays as well so the fly by night was that the actual name of the bar it or was the actual name of the bar it could be seen as a generalized version of you know in, incidents that could have definitely happened <laughs> I started with the inspiration of Pompeii because I love the classics and mythology and so on. So that's very much been my world. So that space um, for me was really important because it's full of ritual and, um, you know, what we, what we um, 
have learned about the past from the excavations at Pompeii. And um, I was inspired by the artistic rendition of, of, you know, what was actually happening in Pompeii and the Villa of Mysteries, although nothing is certain, but I used my imagination to fill it in. So um, that was a very comfortable place for me to be. Um, and, it, you know, in my imagination and that space was important because, uh, you know, it, it, it told about the um, spiritual practices of women in that day in the in when the um the mysteries cult was so strong and uh, there was a lot of political input too because um from Rome they they in the in the opera there's a character of the centurion who is sent from Rome to close down the mysteries cult so uh, you know it was a, a strong link to the feminist work we were doing in the 80s in Toronto so when Kai and I started to work together to develop this, um, it, you know, in a way, Act One belongs to me and Act Two belongs to Kai because Kai was really keen to hit hard politically by having um, this um, scene, the, sec the second part of the opera in the in the lesbian bar in Toronto in the flyby night, which she remembered from having been there. And, um, you know, I was certainly in the lesbian bars in the 80s too, but not in the flyby night because I think that came earlier. And so we saw a great parallel there, you know, and to be able to comment on um, the, the, you know, the strictures against um, women's power and women's religion and women's um, loving each other, and uh, it is a love story, and it's about love across time. So, um, in a sense, they, they, the two spaces are held together by the priestess in Act One, who holds the space in the, in the Villa of Mysteries and in the Isis Temple, where much of it is set, and then by Jules, the bartender, who holds the space in the fly-by-night uh, so they're both women's spaces and they're supposed to be safe spaces. But the conclusion is that there is no safe space for women. And, you know, of course, there's really no safety anywhere. Once you're in the world, there's all kinds of perils. But uh, we're focusing very much on women. And so these two spaces seem to give a great deal of um, of freedom to talk about those issues um, and of course, when the centurion comes from Rome to close down the mysteries and there's a, a conflict and he becomes enchanted by Suli. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of conflict around that. And then everything is scooped by by nature, by Vesuvius erupting and everybody dies and is preserved in ash. Um, and then um, in the in the second act, it is the uncle, the male figure played by the same actor and singer who who does the centurion who comes in to uh, give his niece this impossible choice of either going with the family um, and leaving her her lesbian lover or uh, being being um, forever cut off from the family and being uh, excluded so um, there's a lot of parallels uh, between those two situations even though they are so far apart in time. So we have this very powerful political commentary and this queer love story, which is super exciting because we don't often encounter 
these narratives in the standard opera repertoire. And there are many queer artists who don't often get the chance to represent their own stories and identities and communities on stage. So Kai, can you describe to us, when you think about opening night at the Canadian Opera Company Theatre, can you describe the audience that you hope and that you imagine for this piece? There's going to be a very strong queer audience, lesbian audience, but I hope that I hope there's a cross-section of audience. You know, I hope that the regular folk that go to the CLC performances will come and try it and see what it's like. And and also to realize that, you know, we exist to, you know, that there's lesbian stories that are worth telling and that it's just important that lesbians have uh, and, and queers have um, a presence on stage, that we exist. Well, Pomegranate is a story about love across time. And um, in that way, I feel that it's uh, an absolutely universal story because everybody uh, knows about love. And um, so, you know, we, Kai and I hope that we will, we will reach everybody with this story because I think it has interest for everyone. And of course, it's a, a queer love story. Uh, but I think that um, love is universal and people will be absolutely drawn in by the music, which is a, a heart-opening experience. And so I think that people will relate to this story. And, and we've we've experienced from our workshop performances and and you know a series of performances that we did in um, 2019 that people are indeed very much open to this story, and um, whether they are queer or not. Um, because it represents something absolutely vital to human beings. It is a universal story. And, um, you know, we, we hope that people will come and will be open to it and that it will, that they will learn from it and that it will um, help them to, if they're not already um, open to, to same-sex love and, um, you know, everything that, that, that enriches in our so society, that it will normalize it for them and that um, the love story will be taken for what it is as something vital and important and um, essential to life. There was um, a Canadian Opera Company production of Hadrian, which was uh, Rufus Wainwright and Daniel McIver. And I, I went to see that. I, you know, I do go and see a lot of opera and it was wonderful to sit in the audience and see all these gay men um, just absolutely thrilled to see their lifestyle represented on stage. big, lavish production, um, something way bigger than Pomegranate's going to be because we're more of a chamber opera in a way. Um, but that's something that is really vital, of course, is to, um, to have a, a work of art that allows queer women to see themselves represented on stage in a, you know, in a very beautiful way with a great deal of care that has gone into it. So 
that was something that I, you know, that uh, the seeing Hadrian and being there in the audience and talking to some of these guys that I thought, oh, I, I hope that pomegranate will be able to inspire people in the same way. And of course, you know, the, it was a, it was an aud- a huge audience of, you know, lots of people other than the gay men, but um, that was their response. I understand that this opera has grown and expanded since its original production at Buddies and Bad Times Theatre. And I'm just wondering about what has been added. One thing that's been added is we have a chorus now. So I have two dedicated chorus numbers in each act. And one of them is a kind of, um, it's, it's a coming out song. And that's the sort of funk song. And the the one of the first act is kind of fun too. It's kind of their all their stories um, of the individual um, uh, novitiates, and um, so I have that. And then uh, I have an orchestra of twenty three, which is awesome because before wow. I, had, I had seven musicians, but I but only six at a time because in the first act it was harp, the second act it was um, electric piano. So so that in itself is you know amazing to have that range of color also a bit intimidating but um, it's exciting it's wonderful to talk to new creators and i love how these two are working in partnership i love that they were so adamant about being interviewed together Mm -hmm. there was like it was a very equal sharing of responsibility and very little ego around it. It was quite lovely. Yeah, it's lovely to hear them speak about what they appreciate about each other's process. And I was really inspired by their desire to create for the community an experience like some folks had at Hadrian. So to give more Mm -hmm. opera goers the opportunity to see themselves in the characters and events on stage. Yeah, I think when we talk about queer stories, we talk more about gay men. And lesbians aren't necessarily given such a clear voice. And I, for one, am really excited. Like, we know we've got soprano tenor duets aplenty, but it'll be really lovely to hear the two female voices together in that love story. One thing that I really liked about talking with them was just how eclectic and diverse they both are as artists. I um, It's something I personally relate to, and it was just so neat to see that this incredible new opera came out of so many different disciplines. This has been a great series of conversations, Julie. I've been really inspired by all the artists and thinkers we've talked with. Me too. And I'm so looking forward to the incredible work that's coming. It's going to be a great season of opera. Indeed. Pomegranate will be staged at the Canadian Opera Company Theatre, June 2nd, 3rd and 4th, 2023. Full details and ticket information can be found at coc.ca. Thanks for joining us for this round of Key Change. We're so glad you tuned in, and we hope you enjoyed these conversations as much as Robin and I did. You can hear all episodes from this season and previous at coc.ca slash keychange. We love hearing your thoughts and reactions, so feel free to send those our way via Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Canadian Opera or emailing us at audiences at coc.ca. Thanks, everyone. Until next time.